0: So, Patty, I'm on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, and I see a post from a young man who is out training a uh, sales professional in the field for Beyond. So I reached out to him and said, we got to do a podcast interview because it's been a while since we've had some kind of frontline people on here that are training. So I thought it was a very interesting interview. He did a fantastic job explaining how he's activating these agents that are new to the industry and getting them going.
1: Yeah, I really thought it was interesting, too, in terms of the diversity of industries that these new agents are coming from. It really shows the, um, the depth of opportunity. Yeah. And I, I think Beyond's taking a really interesting approach to getting these guys out, out, you know, yeah. equipped to be out in the field. I agree. Um, and then you had a really cool. I really, um, it was interesting your your question from the field today because it really takes much more of a personal approach, shall we say?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we just talk really about finance, and it, mm-hmm. you know. I think, um, you know, every time I dive back into finance and I go through a new advanced finance course or accounting or whatever, um, which I love, I'm a numbers geek, always have been, um, you know, I'm always struck by like how relevant it is to our industry. And so I try to break that down and give some really specific tips to agents and to ISOs, uh, you know, know, each of them respectively on how to, you know, increase income and then also how to invest capital. Um, And so I think that was, uh, that's something our industry really needs to get better at. Yeah. Um, and then I was surprised about the FTC ruling. So talk about that a little bit, Patty. Yeah, you know,
1: you know it's it, it, apparently the FTC doesn't have quite the uh, authority that it thinks it has in terms of, of um, taking actions against uh, companies in our, in our industry. I think people will be really interested in the discussion you and I had yeah. about that. And, yeah. uh, of course, today's episode is sponsored by Valor Paytech. Uh, that's, uh, to learn more about them, you can go to ccSalesPro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R. We'll talk a little bit more about them during during the episode. But uh, what do you say, James? Should we get going on this one?
2: Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast.
0: Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Logan Peters. He is a Senior Division Director at Beyond. How are you doing today, Logan?
3: I'm doing well, James. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being on. Uh, We're really excited today to talk about how to get these green agents, these agents that are new to the industry, trained, active, and, you know, really out there selling. Um, Logan is on the front lines at making this happen. Um, Before we dive into that topic, though, Logan, give us a little bit of your backstory. I always love hearing this. You know, how did you get into this crazy industry? And how did you end up doing what you're doing at Beyond?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I uh, I actually spent 10 years in uh, shipping, logistics, supply chain, warehousing roles. And cool. I recently got into outside sales, uh, wholesale plumbing industry. And that's kind of how I discovered merchant services. Really hadn't I didn't know anything about it. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, it was very, very new term to me. Uh, but what drew me to the industry was really uh, just the flexibility, uh, potential to have uh, a book of business, build a book of business that um, I didn't need to have someone leaning over my shoulder uh, to be able to build. I, I had that drive. Uh, So that was something that was very natural to me. So I saw that opportunity here. I've actually joined a small ISO uh, that was in a 1099 role. Um, And I made a couple of sales and, you know, things were, I was getting to where I was enjoying what I was doing. I knew this was something I felt like I could do long term. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had a couple of deals go sideways um, when a merchant said, Logan, I like you. But I I looked up your company. I I don't feel comfortable doing business with your company. And I had a couple of those happen to me um, right out of the gate as I got in this industry. So I said, okay, all right, I like what I'm doing. Um, I might need to make a little bit of a shift here, right? So, I opened up my recruitment on LinkedIn, and uh, I got this interesting message that uh, that said, "Do you know what Bob Carr is doing at Beyond?" And of course, I'm super green, right? I said, "Who's Bob Carr?" Right. <laughs> um, so that was a lot of fun, and uh, of course, after some good conversation there and a, a couple of laughs uh, with who uh, was recruiting me there, uh, who's become a good friend of mine, and you know, did did a little homework, and it was pretty eye opening, pretty. Pretty eye-opening that this is where I need to be. This where this would be a good fit for me. So I've been with Beyond since February 2018. Uh, it's been a great move for me. Um, it was a challenging move because I, you know, I had actually changed positions like within twice within four four months, right? And you know, I had that funny. Uh, I, my wife and I joke about that all the time. That you know, I can't believe that I actually let you do this. And I think it's worked out pretty well for us, and we're very happy. But. <laughs> Um, I think that goes into a lot of what we're going to talk about a little bit about this today and and how challenging it can be to get into a role like this that is remote outside sales. Um, And, you know, it's been a lot of fun over four years uh, to get started. And I love developing sales professionals. So it's been a good fit.
0: Yeah. My, uh, my wife, Christine and I had several similar conversations early on, like, cause I left, uh, you know, the job I had was, I don't remember the exact thing. It was like 70, 80,000 a year with, you know, a company car and a gas card and full insurance and all this stuff. And then it was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to go sell street commission sales and, uh, no boss, nobody. We're just going to kind of like see what happens. And, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was an interesting conversation for sure. Okay. So, so we want to talk about again, taking agents who are new to the industry, Getting them trained, activated. So let's start at the beginning of that process, Logan. So let's talk about recruiting. Um, First of all, I'm curious, you know, any thoughts, insights on how you're finding these people that are a good fit? And also, are there any kind of patterns that you've noticed, uh, you know, are are you having more success with people that have a background in selling, you know, financial services, insurance, mortgages, you know, cars, real estate, I don't know. So just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, that trend, and then also kind of more recruiting side of what you're doing to bring these people into the industry.
3: Yeah, I think the natural thing for me was to look for people like me, right? Uh, you always kind of want to duplicate yourself in some way, shape, or form. Um, but it wasn't just the money and the flexibility you can have, but I found that just the fun and rewarding part of connecting with more folks in your community, the business community, um, and and seeing that you can make a serious impact there, right? Uh, so that was that's those are people that I really look for, right? That you know already had that community impact or want to expand upon that. Um, but also for me, it was, you know, um, uh, beyond in particular, it was being part of something bigger than us, right. Uh, bigger than an individual and, you know, having a corporate mission, um, what was a big thing for me. So, um, and the fact that we, you know, have that, the, you know, try and support underprivileged youth to get a quality education as part of our company mission. So sometimes that's a big thing to lean on to that, you know, a lot of folks in sales these days are looking for something that's bigger than them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, background, uh, particularly outside of the industry. I've had a lot of success with a lot of different backgrounds. So financial advisors, uh, they they like to call themselves uh, recovering financial advisors, which is always entertaining. Uh, Solar sales, roofing sales, and some car sales. Um, A lot of folks tend to assume that car sales, everybody's coming to them. Not in this day and age if you're good, right? Mm -hmm, If you're really good, it it is a lot more outside sales than people uh, anticipate. I've even had someone that has come from almost a decade in selling cheese. Okay, so and, wow. and doing very well here, right? That's B two B. That's in the restaurant space. Yeah, so sure. um, it's it's done really well there. So and even uh, current and former entrepreneurs, uh, maybe they had a business, sold it, um, or or you know, really turning over the operation side to other folks. And we've had a lot of success there. So you know, to expand on that, we've I've I really had a lot of success with folks coming from outside of the payments industry. Cool, cool. Tell me, what about the the W-2 model? What about
1: that model in general and your sales culture especially um, that draws people who are new to this industry? I mean, I'm familiar with Beyond. I've spoken with Bob. You know, it amazes me how many people have come in from, like you say, as far diverse as uh, plumbing and cheese, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, Can you give us a little sense for that?
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it was it was, in in my mind, when I started as a 1099 role, I was like, oh, it just gets rid of any restrictive nature of this, right? I can get after it. I'm not gonna have to worry about anyone over my shoulder. And I think that's kind of the misinterpretation of what the W-2 role is naturally going to be, for Mm -hmm. folks that are are coming into this. But I I think the way that we've done things in our culture is that it gives that 1099 flexibility, but with the, you know, the backing of a W-2, right? The support of a W-2 and the simplicity of a uh, W-2, which has been a really big big thing for for our folks and um i think that when i'm when i'm recruiting and i'm interviewing it's like yeah you know they just assume that you know w2 you just got to clock in a certain time and you know clock out at a certain time that's just a mental thing with the w2 but it's it's not that right you have that flexibility during your day so that's been that's been a big part of uh success recruitment too yeah i would
1: imagine so i would imagine so okay you know and you have an agent signed up and um you know, they have no idea how the industry works. And, you know, and it's interesting for me. I'm going to give you a little bit of just a moment of background. I've been kind of tooling around with various training programs. Took James, I've been taking James's training program, training programs offered by a couple of places, just kind of getting an idea for how this feels. Right. And, um, you know, some of them seem to be geared at people who kind of know merchant services some of them sort of take a bare bones approach. And I'm getting the sense, you know, since you have a lot of people coming in from diverse backgrounds, um, how how does that work? How do you teach them how this industry works and get to get themselves rolling?
3: Yeah, I think it's really funny uh, when people come over that already have that background, it's, you know, you're you're in a set a way of doing things, right? So when you're coming Mm -hmm. in Outside of the the industry, you're very moldable, and you can get set in the way that we do things a lot easier, right? So, I, you know, me coming in without that background, well, it was critical for me to show people kind of the similar way that I got up and running quickly. So, you know, with with the way that we have, you know, we have a signing bonus and residual portfolio comp comp model, right? Mm-hmm. So, I like to start by building out their personal income plan. I, I do not like to be that sales leader that just assumes that. They're going to do it this way. They're going to do it my way or the, or what they need. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so I sit down with them based on their goals. Uh, we really, you know, we do a deep dive on on their personal personal goals. Um, and I make sure that I'm in lockstep with them uh, again, every step of the way that to make sure that I'm giving them what they need and reciprocating that uh, both ways. So uh, I think that's the biggest first step. Um, but also uh, sometimes a seller will limit themselves mentally before they ever even get started. Right. And so right, or, right. Or, or the opposite of that. They think it's just going to be the easiest thing in the world and with little effort. And this is just going to be, you know, their dream come true. And so I think it it really allows you to understand where they are uh, mentally before before you ever even get rolling. So um and then, you know, the new team member for us goes through a five-day um, half day virtual training. Each each five days is a half day to where they're, you know, learning to understand our product offering and uh, we also have continuing education courses through what we call beyond university that they can access 24 uh, seven to really get them up to speed quickly.
1: So what about, okay, once you get them trained, once they have a sense for what they're doing, um, next is obviously you, you send them out into the field, but how does that work? I mean, I, I, I know we've talked in over the last few years, some people believe in doing tagalogs, others believe in just sending them out and seeing what happens. Um, and I'm sure there's something in between those two extremes. What's your approach yeah. on that?
3: Yes, certainly. So um I mentioned that we do a half day training mm-hmm. um that first that first week. So the mm-hmm. second half of the day is is blended field time, right? So uh-huh. one of the largest blind spots I was able to recognize from my experience starting out of the industry was the inability to visualize what an ideal merchant looks like, mm-hmm. how to identify the best prospects quickly right. and how to qualify them quickly for my sales funnel. So on day two of their training um, in, in the afternoons is when I take them on what I call a Beyond Community Tour. Um, we go out, we talk to current merchants of ours, ask them why they chose to work for Beyond, uh, work with Beyond, right? Um, and why they remain with us, however many years they've been with us, right? So I, I help the new rep to understand the technology a little bit that we put in place at those merchants and why, uh, what a terminal's capabilities are, maybe what its limitations are, right? Um, and, and then I help them understand the value of the deal based on the merchant. So how they were priced based on what program they have or and things like that, because they can't understand why. And James, I think you'll, you'll like this. They can't understand why the grocery store doing 300,000 a month. Is not as profitable to the con- uh, to the company as a convenience store doing twenty five thousand a month. They don't. They can't right. visualize that. It's based on the program, right? Right. So helping them, you know, visualize that shortens the learning curve dramatically, and it allows for them to visualize what a portfolio of merchants might be that they can create. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I really like that. I actually have one one follow up I want to do about the the training. So, and I know I like I do some work with Beyond on the uh, video training side. And I'm just kind of curious, like, you know. When you look at the video training, and and I'm like a huge, huge believer in getting out in the field, one reason I wanted to have you on the podcast, I saw on LinkedIn, you had made this post that you're out in the field training a rep. And so that was one thing that sparked the conversation. And I'm a big believer in that. How do you leverage the video training, though? I mean, is it kind of more front loaded? Or do you look at that more as like, okay, once they've got a little bit of context, they've been out in the field now, go through these courses to really become an expert? Or like, what what are your thoughts on on the, you know, the video training versus the field training and kind of the proper place for each?
3: So I think the video training is critical honestly. Um I I actually start with them day 1 on some video training that in the afternoon. So that first if they're not coming from the industry, I need them to understand a little bit of the basics about interchange cash discounting, whatever the case may be that I want to start them on. Sure. Uh, but that's that's the beginning, right? And as soon as we're going out in the field, it's kind of the debrief, right? The the field time is the debrief for the videos and the application of what they learned in the in that video training. Mm. So I start with it and and it does continue on um, throughout their career here, the way that we do it. So cool. Cool. Yeah. So
0: give us a rough idea. And, and I know this is going to vary a lot by kind of the person and their, their level of of, of talent and, and previous ability and all that. But, you know, is there a certain amount of time that you go out in the field with them? Is there a certain number of deals that they do before you kind of say, okay, you know, and I know you're going to still provide support, but kind of like, all right, you're on your own, get out there and make it happen. Like yeah. what are your thoughts on, on that
3: transition? Yeah, it's very different. Um, I've 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 brought in folks that work incredibly different industry verticals, and have never really crossed, you know, what industry verticals they like to work. Um, and then I've had some that, you know, will work every every industry vertical. So that will definitely change the time frame. But um, really, anywhere from their first 10 to 15 deals, I really get that sense of of what they're going to do and what they're capable of and where they would need some help and assistance. So um, I say in their first, you know. Four or five months, they've they've boarded ten to fifteen deals at least by then. We pretty know pretty pretty much know what's going on, and um, I I like to I like to see ten to fifteen because if they do five and they're all automotive, that you haven't seen anything yet, right? You haven't seen anything challenging. You haven't been up against anything yet. So I really like to see ten to fifteen and and a few different industry verticals pop up.
0: You know, one other random one other random question I just thought of. Um, you know, one of the things that there's a lot of debate about in the industry, actually uh, W two versus 1099. is when it comes to compensation without being too specific here, the W two model tends to be a little bit more front loaded. Right. And so the idea is let's, let's really get some serious cash in the hands of the the agent that's new that makes their first couple of sales because, you know, they are, they got to pay their mortgage. They got to pay their electric bill. um, And then the residuals being a little bit lower, um, you know, how, you know, how big of a part do you think that plays in getting somebody up and, and going where it's like, not only did they make 10 or 15 sales, but they actually made some serious money from making those sales. How big of a part does that play into the psychology of kind of getting somebody to stick with it and, and go long term versus like people come into the industry and say, well, I found a company that will give me this huge residual split, no upfront money, no free terminal, you know, no equipment options. And all of a sudden, it's like every time they make a sale, they're losing $300, you know, so I'm just kind of
3: curious your kind of thoughts on that. I think is critical. I think that's the number one focus that, you know, at least what we have it beyond is to get someone started quickly and have that immediate success. And, and, and once you see the process through 10 or 15 times and you have gotten that, you know, that upfront paycheck from installing 10 accounts, 15 accounts, you're feeling really good about yourself and yeah, your confidence sure. is, is enormous, right? So you can already see that you're, you're going to build that base if you will rather quickly um uh, by building your residuals so i think that i think that that first 10 to 15 accounts is critical and i think it opens up the open up opens up the mindset of, of, of a new rep very quickly
0: I like it. Okay. So last question here, uh, you know, kind of about the, the uh, recruiting process and getting these people started is, is, you know, the tire kickers, you know, so in our industry, you know, you get a lot of people, because I think, I think probably because of the flexibility, maybe the perception that this isn't like a real job, this is like, you you know, it's commission, you you try it out, you get a lot of these tire kickers, and they come in and they want to see what it's all about. But like, obviously you don't want to spend a huge amount of time with people that aren't willing to take independent action. What are your strategies to keep yourself from wasting a lot of time? I'm, I'm sure you do some screening up front, but like, how do you keep from wasting time with these people when they when they get into the business and you can tell they're, you know, not going to take action?
3: Yeah, and and we have a four-step process that we even published on our website. You know, of what you can expect when you come on board. So yeah, we're trying to figure that out, but it's never perfect, right? Right. Um, I think the continuous one-on-one conversations with your reps is really the key. Um, hiring managers make mistakes, but so do sales professionals, right? They may truly be excited, but everything they've reviewed and understood to be what the role is, they come on board and it's, it's just not what they expect. It's not Mm -hmm. for them. And and so that's going to happen. But, um, I think the commitment is something that is evaluated and, and, you know, determined through an ongoing conversations. And, and I think that, you know, that, that, that 1099 and just let them go, let them run. You lose some of that. Right. And I, I, I experienced that. You lose that communication, you you lose that, and you 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 don't know if they're a tire kicker or not. So I think oh, yeah. that's another thing that's really helped uh, helped me um, in building building a team and building sales professionals. The way that we do it is we have a lot of communication. It's it's very open, but um, I think that really helps keep yeah. keep the tire kickers away.
0: I agree with you. I, I like that. I think the the one on one communication and also I always say focusing on action. You know what I mean? It's 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 easy to have conversations about education you know, let me, you know, let me answer your questions, but it's like, right. Like if you don't bring that back around to how many merchants did you go to today? Or that's a great question. What merchant asked you that? Well, nobody asked me that. I was just thinking about it. Okay. Well, let me ask this of the merchants that you went to today. What was the biggest objection that you heard? And it's like, well, my dog was sick today and I didn't go to any merchant accounts. Okay. Well, when you do, Definitely reach out and let me know what questions they had, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. but anyway, uh, that's my exactly. opinion. but so, okay. Uh, now we have a, an agent, you've recruited them, they're selling, they're doing good, all of this. They get that 10 to 15. Now, what do you do as a leader to kind of like, okay, you want to let them do their own thing, but you also want to help them and equip them for this next level of success and getting to it to a higher level. What's your approach there?
3: Yeah, I think you're going to hear the theme is communication again, right? Uh but certainly con- yeah. it, it it certainly continues to be uh the main thing for me. Um staying in touch with their goals cuz they're going to change, right? Yes. Uh, when they when they first get started. So everything that they're planning is going to change as a sales professional you're building a portfolio, you get you know your your ability to think and grow and dream is going to change a little bit more as you start to start to get accustomed to what you're doing here. So one of the big things for us is that you know we have an incentive program called our Rise program that you know, the more you do, the more you earn, the more of your portfolio you build and own, you keep, right? So helping them understand the incentives. I know there's there's a lot of incentives out there that, you know, sales professionals, you know, no matter what company you're with, they don't completely understand. So right. that ongoing conversation, do you understand how to achieve, you know, what's in front of you, what's possible, and you know how close you are to it? I think that, that they, they just have their blinders on, right? They're, they're focused on their pipeline. Uh, They're not always looking up, especially in you know early in the early years. So helping them stay driven to uh, to do and accomplish what's actually possible for them is a big deal. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's really keeping that drive going. You know, I mean that I think that seems to be a a a distinguishing factor of what you're talking about here, because a lot of people are into you know get them up, get them running, get them in the field, and then
0: yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, well, actually, actually, I think a more accurate description would be very few people are into getting them up and running, getting them in the field and training them appropriately. And even fewer right. <laughs> are into helping them once they get to that point. So right, that's, right. yeah, we live in a very interesting industry. So uh, Logan, this has been so interesting. I really appreciate you jumping on. And and I always enjoy when we get to have somebody on the podcast that is, you know, out in the field, training the agents, making the sales, seeing this all happen. Um, I think it's fantastic uh, for those who want to learn more. Uh, maybe it's a newer agent getting into the industry, listening to the podcast. They want to learn more about you or beyond uh, where would you send them to
3: learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. That's the best place to find me. Um, and you know, I'm I'm always engaging, sharing content there. So de- definitely connect with me there and learn more about us at GetBeyond.com. That's G-E-T B-E-Y-O-N-D.com.
0: Awesome. So, and it's Logan Peters on LinkedIn. You search for Logan Peters, you'll find uh, him on LinkedIn. Uh, and then you said, get beyond com. Um, Logan, thank you again so much for your time today. Really appreciate the insights and uh, just appreciate you sharing that with our audience today.
3: Absolutely. James Patty. thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: So, Patty, of course, this episode is brought to you by Valor PayTech, CC com slash V-A-L-O-R. I want to talk just for a second about this new way of doing business that is starting to get some traction, which is phone orders. Mm-hmm. You can always, of course, key them in. And, and I mean, even that honestly is a big step-up. A lot of uh, like right. say pizza shops, delivery type businesses uh, that you know don't even have they just have a standalone terminal for them to get a Valor, you know, um, you know, virtual terminal where they can key the transactions mm-hmm. on a laptop. That's a step up. But then another step up from there is this idea of getting the phone number of the person that's calling and, and saying, you know, you take the order and you say, okay, great, I'm going to text you a link to pay for right. this. Right. Or you can pay when you come in. um Right. And so what should I text it to the number you're calling from? And, mm-hmm. you know. That is a really, really interesting flow. And it's one that I think is going to continue to gain momentum rather than the person having to stay on the phone, right. rather than going to make the pizza, they have to wait and say, oh, let me go get my card. Okay, I'll wait for you. And then, okay, let me you know write this down. It's like, no, just I'm going to text you a link. You can click to pay there or you can pay when you come in to get the pizza.
1: Yeah. And I think that's going to be, I actually had that happen at a pizza shop just last week. Um, wow. And I loved it. You know, I mean, I know it was sort of like, "Oh, cool! Here's something we've been talking about that somebody's yep. actually doing." Yeah. But I love the idea of it because it's it kind of um, makes a card not present transaction a little bit more secure, don't you think?
0: I definitely, absolutely, it does. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah so, I don't like
0: reading my card number off to a stranger.
1: I hate, I hate doing that, I, and I don't like keying it into a restaurant that this is the first time I've been there. Right. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> Yeah, so, so uh, if you want to learn more about that, um, definitely check out Valor, slash V-A-L-O-R. And so to clarify, that's part of their virtual terminal. You can pull up a, a new like transaction and instead of doing the transaction there, you just put a phone number in, put an amount in and kind of send them like a text invoice basically. Right. Then the customer can click on it and they can very conveniently pay from their mobile device. Um, and it's a great way for the, those, you know, delivery type businesses or phone order type businesses mm-hmm. to get a quick order. Um, also, I'll tell you another really interesting example of it is larger ticket. It's good, but they, they will actually stay on the phone, but they will send it and they can see that it was paid. So, right. hey, I, I just sent you a text. I'll stay on the phone while you pay that. And then I'll let you know once it goes through. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there's a couple of good things there that that can work for. So again, ccsalespro.com slash V-A-L-O-R. Uh, definitely check them out.
2: This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, I wanted to follow up the great interview we
0: just had with Logan, and I wanted to talk about compensation. And I want to talk about finances for a minute. Okay? Excellent idea. Excellent yeah. idea. So um, my company is growing and, uh, you know, expanding and uh, looking at acquisitions and all kinds of exciting things. And as a result of that, I have spent an enormous amount of time the last couple of months uh, brushing up my own kind of financial literacy and uh, going through advanced accounting courses and advanced, you know, MBA finance classes and that kind of thing to really make sure I know what I'm talking about. And and one of the interesting things about that is, you know, understanding that that money is money is money. And and what I mean by that is, it's very easy to categorize money not as a rate, uh, a, you know, a rate of return or something like that, but instead to categorize it as good or bad. Well, residual is good. Upfront right. bonuses are bad. Um, free equipment is good. Leases are bad. Um, those kind of overly—that's kind of black and
1: white, isn't it? <laughs> yes,
0: and it's and it's overly simplistic mm-hmm. uh, to the point of really just being inaccurate and kind of becoming a, a you know a hindrance. Sure. Um, one, of, one of my one of the funniest uh, comments or posts I saw in on one of the groups recently is somebody who obviously does not have very much financial literacy <laughs> mentioned and said that. Um, the people, I was in a video, that's what it was. But it said, uh, you know, the people who make all the money are, you know, something like nobody who's an employee is making a lot of money or something like that. And, you know, I wanted to make a post of, you know, I just posted on LinkedIn, the MasterCard CEO that is at 16.1 million is his current package, you know, right. per year. Um, I think that's decent money, um, yeah. you know. Uh, and so, you yeah, know, this idea that like, well, W2 compensation is is bad, 1099 is good or or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no. That's not how you want to look at your finances, okay? Instead, you want to look at different ways that you can generate cash flow, and you want to look at the time value of money, meaning mm-hmm. you know money that you can get right now. <clears throat> all things being equal, if you give me a thousand dollars, I'd rather have a thousand dollars now than a thousand dollars a year from now, right? Um, so there's something called discounted cash flow models and kind of looking at the the current value of capital. So. Here's my, here's my big takeaway for agents and ISOs from all of this. Okay. A couple of things for the agents. Let's start there. You know, when you're comparing ISOs and looking at different compensation models, the first thing that you need to ask is what do I need in terms of cash flow in order to stay in business? Sure. So as an example, talking about beyond and others, there's, there's others with W2 models where the residual split is going to be lower, but the upfront payout is going to be higher. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you might look at that and say, well, I want to build a residual up as fast as I can. Well, that sounds great. But if you can't afford to stay in the business Mm -hmm. while you build that residual, then building a residual slower, but actually building one is better than starting out for two months and then quitting because you can't afford it. Right. Right. Um, Now, again, there are many other ways to do that. For instance, one of the uh, ISOs that I've worked with and a lot of consulting for I have referred agents over there where they've wanted the 1099 model and they've wanted some different things, but they needed the cash flow. So they've gone over there, and this company will work out like a draw with them and say, "Okay, well, we will give you X amount per week or per month for the first six months, but that's going to go against your residual until you pay it back or whatever, right?" And so they'll, they'll come up. So there, there's an option, right? Um, then for others, you say, "Well, I'm trying to retire in." 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, residual is like the only thing I care about. I already have enough income coming in to like, I can make it, but right. I really want to build this retirement income. Okay. Well then right. look for the largest residual split and think about, you know, so my point to all that is if you, you know, if me saying what I just said made you upset. Okay you're the person I'm talking to. And again, Uh maybe you're upset because you're like, what are you talking about, James? You should always go W-2. That's the only way to do it. Or you should always go 1099. Then you're the person I'm talking to, okay? Right, right. Wake up, okay? Understand that money is money is money, okay? You know, residual is not inherently better. Like if I said to you, I will give you a million dollars or a thousand dollars a month residual, which would you take? If you would take the thousand a month in residual, you are an idiot. Yep. Okay. Residual is not better than money up front. It's just different. And so you have to evaluate it based on the value of it. (laughs) Right. So, you know, don't do a bad deal, obviously, but you have to think through a bad deal relative to the value of the financial deal that you're getting. How long is the account going to be around? You know, you work with one company and they're like, well, we'll give you this residual split. And this other company gives you a 10% lower split. But the company with the lower split, they're holding on to their accounts for twice as long as the other company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden getting that 10% extra split is a really bad deal because the lifetime value of the account is so bad. It's going to hurt the ability to resell the portfolio, you know, to an acquisition down the road. Um, So my point to all of that is I'm not giving the specific advice, but to the agent, just take your blinders off of, you know, like, I'm sorry, but money in itself does not, contain moral absolutes like you right. know it's not good or bad there's just you can make money in a lot of different ways and you need to evaluate them independently and then compare them together to see which is the best fit for your current situation in life right. to achieve your objectives etc cetera, etc cetera. now right. um what about for the for the isos for this i would say kind of the same thing but from the other perspective right mm-hmm. so the, we have these isos that will spend huge amounts of money on an acquisition right? So they will spend $10 million to buy another processing company, right? Right. But when you come to that same company and say, hey, you know what? If you paid for point of sale stations based on profitability of the merchant and created a program where your agents and merchants could get instant access to capital, given certain profitability constraints, they would say, oh my goodness, I would never. Why would I do that? That would be terrible. I'm going to spend all this money to get these accounts. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You just paid $10 million to get right. a number of accounts. And, you know, you paid an average of, you know, $2,000 per mid to get these accounts. Uh huh. And I'm giving you something that would cost you $700 per mid. Uh huh. And you're saying, no, we don't want to do that. No, like that's stupid. Head scratcher, right? You, and again, it's because of this idea that, well, mm-hmm. we want to make money this way, but we don't want to make money that way. Right. Why not? Money is money is money. You have to evaluate it. And especially if you're at the ISO level, I mean, seriously, come on. Like you you listen to the financial experts that you're probably already paying, you know, that know how to do a discounted cash flow model and understand the weighted average cost of capital and all these things, you know, like do the analysis on these various ways and think about it because what I think happens a lot of times is it's so much sexier to look outside the company for growth Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and look at this deal we could do. Oh my goodness, this would be an amazing deal. Well, wait a minute. You have you know all these agents right now, and what if you put capital into them? Um, I'll give you a great example, Patty. I talked to a company um probably three or four months ago on a consulting uh, gig, uh-huh. and the reason that they brought me in was to evaluate an acquisition. And so we were talking about the financial model there, and I do a lot of finance type stuff with that. So um, mm-hmm. I was talking about that, and I said um, just I'd seen some information. I said just out of curiosity, like you have a lot of residual that you're paying out to the to the agents right now. Oh yeah, we have a ton. Okay. Um, when's the last time you offered to do a buyout of their residuals? You know, we've never done that. I'm like, okay. Really? So before you spend X amount of money buying this other company at what it ac- accounted to like probably a 46 X on their, on what their, you know, the, the residual they right. are going to buy, they're paying a 46 X on it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, what if you reached out to all of your agents and offered them between, you know, depending on the amount of the portfolio, a 20 to a 30 X. Mm-hmm. Well, they did that. They spent about half the money they would have spent on the acquisition, and they bought like the same amount of profit for half the money. Uh huh. Because it's like you you got to back up and say, well, wait a second, we have this capital, but how do we invest this capital to get the highest return on investment? Right. And the internal rate of return on this, you know, is, is super super important. And so all that to say. You know, money is money is money. So think about the return on investment, whether you're an agent or an ISO, take the blinders off of, well, this is good, this is bad. We do this, we don't do this and say, well, wait a minute. We, you know, as, a, as an agent, you want income. So evaluate the different ways you can get that. As an ISO, say we have capital and evaluate the different ways you can invest that and mm-hmm. look at it as just a, a financial return rather than having the blinders of good and bad on when it comes to financial um, transactions.
2: Good stuff, James. Thanks. This is The Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com.
1: So James, I want to talk briefly about the Federal Trade Commission. Sure. Sure. And this has happened a few times in my tenure in this business. It's, it has its eye on, on payment processors and it wants the industry to know. Um, in March, the agency announced two separate actions in, regarding payment processors. But here's the kicker. The FTC really can't do much to punish errant processing companies because there was this Supreme Court ruling last year that significantly reduced the agency's punitive powers. I have to admit, this is something that kind of slipped by last summer. I didn't really notice what was going on. But apparently the FTC has long believed that it has the authority um, to give up or repay, you know, make people, companies, give up or repay profits gained from activities that are deemed to be unlawful. So you're, uh, you know, you're uh, selling some kind of scam on covid um, paraphernalia, you know, face right. masks or something. And it's a scam, you know, they could the way they've always looked at this is whatever money I made on that scam can be taken from me and paid back to the people right. who who paid the money. Um, but the Supreme Court last April um, ruled that Congress never explicitly gave the FTC such authority. Well, um, okay. Yeah. And apparently the high court said the FTC can only seek monetary remedies when it, a company violates an existing cease and desist order.
0: Wow. Yeah, well, that really limits their scope of uh, really
1: limit basically yeah. all the so basically all the FTC can do is give bad actors a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And that's what happened in these two cases. Um, one, it was Istream cream financial. Um, okay. FTC alleges they processed millions of dollars in payments for consumers who were seeking uh payday cash advance type loans, payday loans, cash advances. Sure. Um they were enrolled in a bogus coupon service that dinged them $100 up front and 1995 a month. And the FTC said uh that 95 of consumers illegally charged for the coupon club never used the plan. And tens of thousands tried to cancel to no avail. Mm. So, you know, they've now placed a permanent ban on this company processing for high-risk clients. Mm. Um, And while I was able to order the company to pay some money, which the FTC said would go towards consumer refunds, the amount is a fraction of the forty million dollars that that sure. in total losses.
0: Sure.
1: And then in a separate case, they filed an administrative complaint against Electronic Payment Systems and its owners for allegedly allegedly opening merchant accounts for fictitious for uh, fictitious companies on behalf of a company called Money Now Funding. It hmm. was a business opportunity scam. Um, that the FTC sued and six uh, successfully back in 2018. Huh. Um, and according to the FTC, the this, you know, this company's employees turned a blind eye to the credit card laundering and gave advice, apparently even told money fund now funding how to spread the charges among different counts to avoid detection. Mm. Um so now, of course, they're prohibited from credit card laundering and similar schemes. But that's about right. all the FTC can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, you say that, but obviously I, I would assume then what does this fall to the FBI, the Department yeah. of Justice? I mean, somebody yeah. else is going to process. Somebody else
1: will come in and do something. But right. it's, it won't be able to, you know, it'll what the FBI and those people will do is go after this money now funding company.
0: Right. They probably okay. will not
1: go after the processor because the processor Oh, kind of falls under FTC jurisdiction.
0: Oh, I see what you mean. So, okay, so let me see if I can reframe this to make sure I understand. So, what you're saying is the processing company kind of was uh, aware of fraudulent activity going on with one of its merchants. Right. It not only failed to stop this fraudulent activity but it even maybe encouraged or maybe educated encouraged them on how them, to do it better. Right. And you're saying that that, which used to be under the FTC, and they could come in and say, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sue you for how you profited from this, et cetera, et cetera. Now the FTC can't do anything. And because that company didn't technically break any laws, they just told somebody else how to break laws. Now the FBI can only go after the other company that broke the laws.
1: Pretty much. That's, yeah, that's, that sums it
0: wow. up pretty much. You know, that's super interesting, actually. Okay.
1: So yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> sure. You know, payment processing companies can't ignore red flags. You know, they're they're probably some kind of like moral obligation to right. do something. Um, but this puts the FTC, you know, uh, consumer protection kind of thing in, in limbo. Yeah. Um. Mm. And, uh, you know, they obviously they said uh, Congress needs to get into, you know, get into the act and do something, give it the authority right. uh, to get money for consumers have, who have been scammed um you know in the meantime they're going to do everything they can to stop scammers but they're not going to be able to pay consumers back wow so
0: oh very interesting actually yeah Yeah, i wasn't aware of that at all so I like i said this
1: one slipped under the radar for me but i when i saw a reference to it you know uh i guess it was uh last month in april sometime i thought i had to tuck that away and make
0: sure i tell everybody about that yeah Yeah. wow good stuff patty thanks for sharing that Mm